like in a perfect world this would be a three hour long episode because we had mountain bike worlds uh first night was this the the first nike race or just the first nike race for skyline uh it was the first nike race for a bunch of groups and um in fact there were like at least three different nike races going on that i was aware of yeah so nike started involved our players and all of them yeah like our players um there you go right um makes us sound way cooler than we are because yeah, we've had the first night race we've had worlds point to point is this weekend um tons of like text like there's there's there a lot to talk about <laughs> we have a lot to talk it's about fun and we're not going to get to all of it so uh if we don't talk about your favorite thing you'll just have to cry about it um we're going to do some quick rapid fire questions uh and then dan and i our, our main topic uh today comes from uh, a question that was asked by joe cochran uh shout out joe for th- 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 third or fourth yesterday not fourth fourth Congratulations, Joe Cochran, on fourth place. We're going to talk about some tactics so that next time you can get second or first place. How about that? Okay. That was a little enough. Anyway, uh, that's the kind of main meat and potatoes. We're going to rush through. we got a lot to talk about, so um, uh, we'll dive right in here. Before anything else, um, we have something very exciting that we want to talk about. This is something that has been um, that people have been working on for almost two decades now, um, and it's something that will have a much longer impact than anything that we do here. Um, we, one of the founding members of Maybird, Andy Knobloch, um, really, really great guy. I don't, I don't think he listens to the podcast. We'll have to get him in here. Uh, his dad is the probably one of the greatest trail stewards in the area. He has put so 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 much work into he was instrumental in like the new shoreline uh just north of parley's canyon he's been involved in all sorts of, of trail building um uh initiatives ar- around the area and, and we have some some pretty exciting news um yeah he's been he was instrumental he was the one that did the the redo of mormon pioneer trail yes that is he well. was very instrumental in that new section from elbow fork up to big water in mill creek and so all these great, cause it's, it's been just a really difficult thing in Salt Lake because we have some, uh, some different circumstances in Salt Lake than they do in Draper, which makes it really, really difficult. quick, different circumstances. I'm less diplomatic than Dan. Like we've got some people who are just like needlessly obstinate when it comes to putting new trails in some people that just aren't concerned about Save community. Our foothills. Yeah. Like, like community well-being is just not as important to some people as others. And a lot of people have really kind of selfish, you know, motives and, that's been a huge roadblock to getting trails in. and because like trails this is so important because like maybird can be whatever cycling can be whatever if there aren't trails we're, we're at square one you know like we we have the ability to do this great sport because there are trails and trails you know by extension have have a really like life-changing impact on people you know like if this sport matters to you trails matter to you um and and john knobloch is like the sterling knight in shining armor of salt lake city trails he basically, so after he retired, he pretty much has done trails full time and he doesn't get paid for it. It's, it's completely volunteer and he's just really dedicated his life to it. And he's, he's just such a great guy. One of the gu- nicest guys you're ever going to meet. Um, but for the past 14 plus years, he, the, the area kind of by the Grandeur Peak trailhead all that open space back there for the past 14 years, he's been 
raising funds and gradually purchasing parcels of that land from private owners to keep it as open space. And he's done it mostly through like accessing grants and, and so forth, but they've just been parcel by parcel buying up that land to keep it open space, which, you know, it's, it's just great. It's a, pe- a place where people can, can walk their dogs and hike. And, um, but he's had this dream for the past 14 years of creating a trail that's going to start an extension of the shoreline trail ultimately that's going to start at the Grandeur Peak Trailhead and eventually connect with the pipeline trail that goes up into Mill Creek. And, and the cool thing about this trail, it's going to be really the first trail that you know, starts in the valley and ends up in one of the canyons. Um, and through this trail, you'd be able to, from the valley, without riding your bike up any of the Mill Creek Canyon Road, you'd be able to to ride from there into Park City. Which is huge, which is, is oh. so, so, so cool. Cause like you can, you can kind of do that now if you ride up the first bit of the canyon and get on, on Rattlesnake. Like we're talking about the ability to ride. Hundreds of miles. Hundreds of miles from, from like, you know, for, I mean like candidly, like a lot of us here in Maybird live in, in this kind of Eastern Mill Creek area. Like we're talking about the ability to get in, to go from your backyard to Park City. Yeah, it's going to be super cool. It's also, you know, and this, this new trail section is going to be about at least a two mile section of trail. It's going to be fairly difficult to cut. There's going to be some interesting geography that's very steep that it's got to cut through. But, but the plan for it's actually going to make it just an awesome trail. He's designing it to be fun, enjoyable, multi-use. It's just such an awesome blessing to the community. And he has fought for so many years to get this through. Finally, some of the developers that were holding on to some land finally realized that, yeah, they're not going to be able to do anything with this land. And he was able to get acquire enough money to purchase the land and didn't come cheap. And um, the the trail is actually going to begin probably this this coming week. Which is again, the contractor just barely finished a project and is ready to move on to this one. Like we're talking the culmination of over a decade worth of work beginning this week. That is so, 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 so cool. super stoked about it. One thing I just want to plant a little seed on this. Um, you know, we're so blessed to have all these trails in our community up the trails up in park city, the trails around shoreline. Um, we are so blessed from him, but I don't think any of us have really done our share to help create these trails. And, and, um, I do think that this is an opportunity where we can help give back a little bit. So um, I just wanted to plant the seed here. So John for this trail has raised through, through getting through accessing like government grants and whatnot from the city, from the state, from um, he has, he's come up with all the funds necessary, but he's about $30,000 shy. And he told me the other day that, he's he's willing to use his own funds to cover whatever he can't gain through grants and so but he did ask if our team with maybird and some of the local high school teams if we would you know help with some fundraising i told him absolutely um because again i just just want to echo this really quick like you know um I, i we use these trails every single night basically like these trails have a truly like transformative um, impact on our community and we don't 
really pay for them. Like some of our tax revenues go to, to maintaining them, I understand, and, and, and building them. But like, um, I don't know if there's a more worthwhile investment than like helping to pay for these. So like if you work for a company that's looking for an opportunity to like really actually make a dent and make people's lives better and they have the funds to do this, like let us know. If, if you have the ability to do this, like it doesn't have to be the full 30,000, just whatever you can can contribute to this. Like this is a huge deal. Like there, well, I mean, there's- if, if every neighbored family was able to come up with a hundred bucks, John probably wouldn't have to use a dime of his own money to help. Yeah, and, and like again, like John Knobloch has, if you take, you know, a professional like him, because again, like this has been John's retirement project, but he's a very intelligent, professional, well-educated guy. His time's worth a lot of money. If you think about the time value of his investment in these trails, like it makes the $30,000 look like chump change, yeah. you know? So like if there's anything we can do, please approach us, please let us know. So there will be, we're, we are going to help him with fundraising and I'm just, planting this seed so everyone is going to be able to step up to whatever however much they're able to help out but I think this would be just a good opportunity to help bless the community for I mean trails are around for hundreds of years you know if there's there's people's 100 years from now would would be using this trail so it's like just an if, awesome if, thing if Maybird can touch a handful of people's lives that's a success a trail like this can touch hundreds of lives for generations yeah so this is a huge deal if there's anything you can do uh reach out to us and let yeah. us know so you'll hear more about this yeah all yeah. right off off the soapbox time for rapid fire okay the view's so nice from the soapbox though <laughs> all right yeah so we had we had a well one other thing too is yesterday was just an awesome awesome day for me I got to I attended one of the three Nike races that were going on and I just love going to these races just seeing all these kids that I know just all doing so well uh, just so many fast kids I mean there's way too many cool results and to really talk about but it was just awesome to see how fit and how fast and just how much fun everyone was having just such a cool cool thing you know and and I did there were quite a few kids too that you know like I could tell didn't have their best race or perform quite up to their potential and I um, you know what I'd say to you is you know just use this as motivation to get on your bike and ride more yeah you know usually the kids that that didn't have their best race most of them had kind of lost a little motivation later in the summer and and weren't spending as much time on the bike so you know this first race is always a good wake-up call to to spend some more time on the bike, go have some more good times on the bike, push yourself on the bike. And and as like a reminder, it's the first race. Yeah. It's it okay. Yeah, if, if, if it went bad, it's fine. You know, like... Um, well, if, if this was your best race, you did everything wrong. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, there's l lots of room to improve. Bravo to everyone for that. Yeah. Just an awesome day. Thanks, everyone. So we got a few rapid fire questions to go over. Joe's going to... I'll ask him and Joe's going to answer him. But the first three came from... Actually, the first two came from Joe Cochran. And... This one, I'm curious. I have no idea what this actually is, but Joe asked, what is tire TPI? All right. Rapid fire. TPI stands. I'm going to guess. Can I just guess? guess? Is it threads per inch? Yes. Okay. Congratulations. No. All right. I was, you, you were going to say like like toad pool insurance or something. <laughs> like, I, was, I was hoping for a more spicy guess there. Um, yeah. So threads per inch, essentially, it, it's, it's uh, tires are constructed of several different layers of rubber and thread and they're not just like you know like i used to imagine that tires were just like a mold that you were pouring hot rubber into and then you send them out you know like there are several different compounds that go into making a tire the casing of the tire like it's it's shell or skeleton almost 
is is usually um, you know made up of, of like a weave of threads. Oh, did did you say I I might have thought I was thinking treads. It's threads, not treads. Threads. Threads. Per okay. Threads right, per inch. Right. Glad we clarified. Dan is not the tech expert. Yeah. I'm not either, but compared to Diana, I am. So um, threads per inch, and that's the casing. So these aren't something that you see. Unless your tire's really worn out, you can sometimes see on the sides, like on, on Continental tires, I've noticed this. Um, you can see after they wear down a little bit, you'll see like uh, like threads, almost like a fabric inside the tire, right? And so when there are more of those threads, when the threads are finer, you know, when, when you have more threads per inch, the tire is going to be lighter and more supple, right? So these are like the high-end expensive $80 tires that feel nice and corner well, but they wear out a little quicker, right? A lower TPI tire, like your $40 or $50 tire that's going on your enthusiast bike, not your race bike, um, isn't gonna feel as good in the corners. It's going to be less supple. It's gonna maybe feel more firm, um, but they last longer. Um, we, we were curious, we compared like the Maxxis Aspen right now is kind of our default XC tire. That has, a, a range. It actually has uh, several different TPIs in different parts, but essentially it's 120 TPI tire, 120 threads per inch. Uh, comparable XC tires. Um, Joe's favorite Kendas are about 120 as well. Uh, something really supple like a, like a Schwalbe um, Addicts tire or like the high-end Vittoria ones as well, I believe get up into like 150, 160 TPI range. Um, there are some that surprised me. Supposedly the older specialized fast tracks were like 60. Um, but I think they end up using a softer rubber to compensate or something like that. Um, if, if I'm honest with you, it's not something you need to memorize or really even need to know. You know, most of the tires that we're dealing with here cost about the same. They all have similar claimed performance. Um, it's good to understand the mechanics of the tire, but like I wouldn't go and say, oh, I'm not going to buy this tire because it has this TPI. Like, you know, we know what tires we like. And, um, you know, like if you're shopping, and for whatever reason, you have this weird tire no one's ever heard of before that's a really low TPI that's very expensive. I'd probably avoid that, but I don't really think, I don't really think that's a thing. So that, that's, that's my, my quick two-minute so shtick on TPI. I've heard that the pros get versions of these tires that have higher TPIs than yes. amateurs have access to. Correct. That is true. And, and technically, they're not supposed to because the UCI has a rule that like any piece of equipment that you use as a professional has to be available for public purchase. A lot of people don't know this. So like Peter Sagan a few years ago for Paris-Roubaix wanted like a very specific sized frame for some reason and Specialized had to sell five or six of them, right? To make that. So yes and no. I've, I've heard this is one area where the like, if you call it a prototype or something, like there were these Continental tires that were being used on the road that everybody wanted and you couldn't buy anywhere because they had a really high TPI. I don't think you want that as a consumer, if I'm honest, because like any higher TPI than what we're getting on like the nice high end tires you're buying when you're walking and you're walking into a shop and buying these days are going to last for like 20 minutes. You know, like they will be so supple. They're literally a race day tire. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't even sweat it. Like if there is something and if there was a tire that was 250 TPI, I don't think that you'd want it. Okay. That's a good answer, Joe. Thank you. I'm trying to keep this brief. I'm working on that was, brevity. That's my that's yeah. my that's my August resolution. Rapid fire is kind of a relative term. Yeah, I was gonna say it's rapid fire for me is different than a lot of people. <laughs> All right, next question. Hit okay. Me. Next question is what is gravel worlds and does anyone care about it? So we should establish terms. When we say worlds in cycling, we mean world championships. And in almost every discipline, that means the UCI World Championships where you win a rainbow jersey that you get to wear for a year, right? Gravel does not have this. Part of the appeal of, of quote-unquote gravel racing is that it is unsanctioned. There are fewer rules. There's no pesky USAC fee or UCI, you know, red tape you have to walk through. Um, 
and if and a couple of years ago somebody decided that they wanted to start gravel worlds right which is kind of oxymoronic because like the whole point of gravel is that there isn't a worlds right um gravel worlds if you if you google it you'll <laughs> you know like it is an actual event that's called gravel worlds garmin puts it on now and it's like a somewhat important gravel race that happens in nebraska um in reality gravel worlds is unbound gravel formerly known as dirty Hansa. Um, that is the biggest, most prestigious gravel race to win. I would even argue that like Steamboat and Leadville, if you want to call that a gravel race, are more prestigious than quote unquote gravel worlds. Uh, the question was, does anyone care about it? Like, yes, it's a big, well-organized, important-ish race, but it is not, you know, I, I think if you actually want to find who is the best gravel racer on the day, look at who won Unbound Gravel. That's my short kind of spiel on that. Okay. All right. Then we got a couple questions from... Andrew May, um, his question, first one is thoughts on oval chain rings. Mm-hmm. So. Uh-oh, controversy. Controversy. No, not really. Like, if my really short answer is try it and see if you like it. I have gone back and forth. There are supposedly some concrete benefits to using an oval chain ring. Um, it's essentially, if you're not familiar, like, it, it is literally, they look really wacky. Like, most chain rings are perfect circles. It's essentially a chain ring that kind of bows out at the ends. So like a normal chain ring would be 34 teeth. Mechanically, with, with an oval chain ring, it'll be like a 32-34 or, or a 34-36, something like that, right? And it essentially like, you know, the, the, the science behind it is that it's a recognition of the fact that your pedal stroke is not perfectly even, that there are points when you're pedaling where you're putting down more power and torque than others. And it's an attempt to compensate for that, right? So I've ridden oval chain rings before, and it essentially smooths your power out. Um, uh, Andrew likes riding them on really technical stuff. You know, you're not as lurchy. I found that it felt really weird, and I ended up going back to my um, to my standard chain ring. Um, I don't know. It's it's kind of an opinion thing. I think and, give it a and shot. I think like, they've been. I've looked at some studies that where they've tried it. They I don't think they've actually been able to prove one or the other's better. It's totally a preference thing. Um, and, and I can see why people might use them. They, they really do smooth out your pedal. For me, I personally didn't like it. It just felt too, it just felt unnatural to me. And it also kind of messes with your sprint, I've found. Um, like I heard back in the day, Mark Cavendish on his road bike where you have a two by, he would have a standard round uh, big chain ring and then his little ring would be an oval because he wanted the efficiency or the perceived efficiency and power smoothing on like a long steep climb but when it came time to sprint he felt that the oval kind of messed with his with his um you know messed in kind of that department so like um if you're gonna buy oval i would buy rotor oval chain rings um you can clock them a lot more like you can twist and kind of play with like where the oval comes into play in your pedal stroke more effectively um my observation is that most professional riders use a round ring i don't know if that really means anything um yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, maybe give it a shot. See if you like it. Some people love it. Some people don't is my short answer on that. Yeah. So, yeah, nothing okay. crazy or controversial. That's a there. good question. Good um, question but, yeah, though. definitely try them out because people do love them. Yeah. It's funny. I actually put some on my daughter Amy's bike and asked her what she thought, and she didn't even know. She was like, I don't know. I don't care. Yeah, she you didn't know. even know anything was different. So. Yeah, there you go. Depends on who you are. Okay. And so his next question is, how do you decide how many headset spacers – and do you slam your stem, et cetera? Okay. My very short answer on this, because this could literally be an episode into itself. Um, 
getting your front end lower, getting your handlebars closer to the ground, generally speaking, allows for greater mobility. It basically means you can move your bike around more relative to your body. Um, and that will help you in technical and, and kind of descending situations. Um, it also is closer to the geometry you'll get on a road bike. And some people feel that that puts them in a better pedaling position. Um, my third point would be that, you know, slamming your stem, as some people say, or removing all the spacers, getting your front end as low as you can, aesthetically looks nice. Um, I would say my, my, the kind of long and the short of it is get your front end as low as you can without breaking your back. You know, like I see some people have a really insane position where their slam is totally, totally slammed and their backs all bent out of shape. Like don't do that. But you know, if you go out to your, and I've said this before, if you go out to the garage and look at your bike and you have two inches worth of spacers and your stem is flipped, so it's pointing up towards the sky, your bike probably rides worse than it could is my yeah, very short yeah, answer. You're, you're probably going to look like a dork is the biggest and, problem. And like, I don't, oh gosh, I want to skirt around that because I wish I could pretend that I don't care, but like I do, like it looks better to have your bike slammed, but that doesn't mean that you should do it in every case. So like, a lot of you have had it where your coaches get you up on those ladders and you get into a hinge and you see how far you can push your arms forward. And if your front tire won't, hit the ground in that position, usually like shortening your stem or removing some spacers would help you be able to do that, which, which basically makes it so you could go down something steeper. Um, that's kind of what this all refers to. It's, it's just making sure your bike fits right for drops and descents. It just gives you more mobility. But I love what Joe says, like, don't break your back to do it. Cause I know talking to Bo Foreman, he, um, you know, he's very familiar with like the Lee McCormick fitting method, but on a lot of people that he's been fitting, he's had to back that off a little bit because they experience back pain and, and, uh, and sometimes it compromises a little bit of their climbing comfort, which can affect your efficiency in the long run. Yeah. Like the, the goal is to be fast here, not to look good, but our observation is that more people have more people should try to slam more essentially. Like the odds are, if you're listening to this, and you're not sure you probably fall on the end of the spectrum where yeah, you most people ride bikes from. that are too big. Yeah. Well, not too big. And then yeah, like they big. also just like the, the shop, you know, always sends it with like, f you know, three inches of spacers underneath the stem and the stems pointed up. And like, if you've never ridden a bike before and you're riding it around the parking lot of, of contender or hangar 15 or whatever, it will feel nicer to be sitting more upright because bending over to get on a bike is uncomfortable for somebody who's never done it before. And for some reason, some people never get over that. So, Slam it as much as as much as you can without you know hurting your back and putting yourself in an uncomfortable position is my short answer on that. Yeah, and uh, reach out to a, a coach that has a set of ladders and can help you dial this in correctly, so you're not just guessing. Yeah, so. like we we have the ladders. If yeah. you want to come over, we'll we'll take a look and. Yeah, you know. we have some. The Larkins have some. Bo has some. We're flexing with our ladders over here. Oh, you know what? Maybird bought like all the ladders in the state at one point. I, yeah. I drove to like every Lowe's there was. Like ladders. they're trying to figure out like, is there a way to make meth with ladders now? Do you have like a registry like for Sudafed? You know, like if you see a guy with curly hair buying ladders, tell him to get lost, you know, like <laughs> taking him back to a trailer park and helping kids fit bikes. Um, yeah, no. Anyway, yeah, oh. that's the shtick on that. Is that the last question? That's the last more? That's the last air quotes rapid fire question. Rapid fire question. So Joe Cochran had one other question. He wanted us to talk about um, tactics and strategy and XC racing in particular. Um, and we decided this is uh, worthy of, of a little more than a, a, a quick, disorganized, tangential Joe Draper rapid fire answer. We, we want to you know spend a little bit of time talking about this. 
Um, and I don't know if Dan and I totally agree. I'm actually, I don't really know what you're going to say. I've, I've kind of heard the preview. So this might be a little controversial. This could be, we, we could get some spicy hot takes here, but, but Dan, very essentially, what are your thoughts on tactics and strategy in XC racing? Okay. Well, let me first start talking about 80-20. So 80-20 is, it's kind of just a magical ratio that you hear a lot out there. You hear about it, like it, it's, you know, when you talk about polarized tw- training, you know, 80% of your rides are below LT1 and 20% are above LT2. Um, and in like the corporate world, they say that like, you know, 20%, 80% of the work is accomplished by 20% of the workforce or what, you know, you just hear that ratio a lot. And I think this ratio really, really applies to to getting faster on the bike in, in kind of a different way. Um, so I would say 80% of it is your health and your fitness. And by health and fitness, I mean, um, by health, that's where like your nutrition, your just your overall nutrition comes into play. It also is where like where your mental health comes into play because mental health is health. And, and it also, that 80% also is, is your fitness, just how much work have you accumulated over a period of time. And so I would say that, you know, when it comes to racing, 80% of it is your health and your fitness. Essentially okay. like the amount of power you can produce, your VO2 max, things like that are more important, very broadly speaking, than a lot of other things combined. When you decide to follow an attack or whatever. like So, but... Um, well, for instance, like say you have like two people that have never ridden a bike before, but one is healthy and one is unhealthy. Okay. Get them both on a bike. Who's going to be faster? Healthy guy wins. Healthy guy wins every single time. That's just kind of a stupid example. But, um, so I just want to point out 80% of how fast you are going to be on race day comes down to your health and your fitness. Yeah, like so. if you've been slacking all season and you're in bad shape, you're not going to tactics your way to a win. And so is, is essentially it, what we're trying to say. Yes, but that twenty percent that twenty percent is made up of of your of your skills, mm-hmm. you know, your equipment mm-hmm. and your tactics. So tactics are maybe like five to ten. No, 10%. no I don't know. I mean and the thing is is that twenty percent is really important because you know, you can't win if you're only 80% as good as you can be. And I say it's also a pretty marginal sport. Like there's not an hour between finishes at an Ica race. There's seconds, you know. Um, I've, I've been in sprint finishes before. You know, sprinting for like 12, but it's still, you know, still a sprint finish, right? Um, so yeah, like yeah, it's so not negligible, but it's not everything, I guess is, is what we're trying to get at here. You know, and when I was thinking about this, I think most people have this flipped around where they would probably think, the 80% is what bike you're on and the 20% is your health, fitness and tactics and all that other stuff. Because the funny question is always like, if you put me on Nino's bike and Nino on a Walmart bike, could I beat him? Is like, is like the age old cycling philosophy question. I really don't know. I would, I would assume there's a bike you could put Nino on where I could, I could beat him. One without wheels. See, I I, I set you up for a layup there so Dan could burn me. There will be a day of reckoning, though. I'm coming back for you, old man. Um, yeah, anyway, but like, like that's, you know, like 
80, again, 80% of it, like I remember like there was a kid in, in my year of Nika who was like winning races on just the crappiest bike and it bugged everyone so much because like, oh, you shouldn't be able to win races on a crappy bike. But I'm like, really? Bikes matter and I like tech, but at the end of the day, the stronger rider is going to win. You know, I, I think, I think unless your bike's in really bad shape, you know, or if it's 10 pounds heavier, maybe. Um, and if your race tactics are really bad, like if you have two riders who are, who are, you know, have the same VO two max and the same FTP and they're on the same bike and everything, then yeah, strategics, you know, well, yeah. strategy is going to, then that 20% stuff is, is really huge. starts playing. And, and playing. in, and in Nika, none of you on Maybird are, are walking away with races. You know, like everybody who's listening to this has competition. Who's very close to them. I, I think everybody here has some, you know, maybe it's not even Nika, the kids you've been racing at USAC or ICUPS. There's three or four kids who are very close to you, who you finish around all the time. If you improve your tactics, you're going to beat them more of the time. You know, so like this is worth paying attention to, but please do not think that like, oh, I have bad tactics, so I'm going to lose or, oh, I have good tactics, so I don't need to train is, is kind of the essential disclaimer. Oh, yeah. that this is not everything. This yeah, is a, a marginal. A big, awesome engine is going to help you win every time. Yeah. But so like a good example of this is, so yesterday I, I I watched the JVA race for division two um, and the Gibbon twins, they were racing and there was a, there was a kid that kind of, he kind of started out the race leading these two just tucked in behind him, followed him the entire race Beautiful. right at the end. The two of them just got around him, had plenty of gas in the tank. They left him behind as those two went and took first and second. And this kid got third. He basically pulled him around the whole race course, which is like beautiful tactics. Um, something that's hard to get away with outside of Nika because this kid probably just didn't know better. He thought he was winning the race and little did he know that these, he had a couple sharks back there waiting to attack, you know? And, and it uh, comes back to the same principle of the, the leader of the bike race is not necessarily the guy who's going to win, you know, like leading in a bike race is kind of a disadvantage and not even because of like aerodynamics, even just psychologically, setting the pace like you know like you're going to end up going as hard as you can if there are people behind you like oh we don't need to go harder than this right this is the pace so if i can hang with this why would i attack i'll just wait until the very close to the end and then and then get you there right like that's the essential kind of calculus that was going on there i hope yeah the well yeah but yeah. the point i was trying to get at too though is that was awesome awesome tactics but these kids had to be really really fit to pull that off i mean mm -hmm. they couldn't have shown up without with like very little fitness and said, well, you know, they couldn't have showed up with only riding like one day a week and said, you know, my plan is going to be, we'll stick behind the leader the entire race. And then right at the end, we'll pull away. That takes a lot of fitness to be able to, to use tactics like that, mm -hmm. you know? So, so really, you know, if they didn't have as much fitness as they did, that tactic would have been useless unless it was that is the tactic someone's using to, you know, to move up from like 25th to 26th or something, you know, but, um, usually you'd move up from 26th to 25th Dan, but it's okay. You <laughs> I know, get that backwards. Math is hard. You know, <laughs> thanks for listening to this podcast where numbers <laughs> over 20 are just are way over Dan's giant head. Um, <laughs> so that was like a double roast there. No, but like, I, I think the point stands, you know, that like, um, if you are comparing yourself to people that you are comparably strong to that, you have similar, but you know, like all the other things are the same, it will come down to strategy, right? And it's not even just like, you know, what do I do in the race? It could be, what do I do in this? So like, I'll go back to Eagle, Eagle Mountain 2017, I guess. It was my senior year. It was like the fourth Nike race. 
And um, Eagle Mountain, if you haven't raced there, the year I was doing it, it was basically you'd finish the single track and then get onto this like slight uphill dirt road for like half a mile. It was this really, really long drag at the end. And I was I was fighting for fifth place, I want to say, with, with this kid who was a really, really strong climber but didn't have a lot of high end. I'd raced with him. I, I still remember his name. I'd, I'd raced with him all year long. And I knew this guy. I'm like, this guy, if I can hang on to him on the climbs, I'm a better descender than he is, and I'm way bigger than he is. I, I can almost guarantee I can, in just a, a Watts competition, I beat this guy, right? And so in, on the last lap, I have this choice where I'm like, do I try to attack halfway into this lap with 15 minutes to go in the race or whatever and try to drop this guy? Or do I just hang on to this guy until either someone catches us and then I hang on to them, or we get to the very end and I attack at the end? I'm like, I can just hang on to this guy's wheel. He's gonna try to drop me, but if it's, it's flat on the last bit of this, I'm, I'm gonna get to the end of this descent. We're going to get to this road and I'm going to wait until the last minute to pass this guy because I don't need to pass him sooner. Right. And passing him sooner, it's a, you know, it's a, it's like a half mile. It's long enough that like, it's not a sprint. You know, if I try to drop this guy, there's a good chance he'll come back. But if I stay at his pace until the very end, I can get around him. Right. So like, I would say, know your competition. You know, if you're going out to USAC races and it's the same five guys you're kind of in this group with every single time, know which one of them suck on descents. Know who's really good on descents. Get ahead of him before the descent. You know, if you know that if you race with Steve, Carl and Dave and Steve's an amazing descender, do not let him get to the single track ahead of you. If you know that Carl's an insanely good climber, but that he can't sprint, bear that in mind. If, if you're trying to figure out how to beat Carl in the last lap, like know who you're racing against, know what you're good at. And, um, and and lean on your strengths is, is another thing I'd throw out. That's great. Yeah, so so about tactics, it's like, yes, they are important. They're not the most important thing. And and I would say, Joe's got a quote that's just, it's it's almost too brilliant for him to have thought of himself. Especially that, with your genes floating around in my DNA, right? It's, yeah. it's remarkable. But he, he compared like mountain biking to checkers and road, road cycle racing to chess. Yes, road cycle racing is like chess, Dan. (laughs) Like 95. (laughs) Let me explain my brilliant quote so that Dan doesn't... Like, tactics matter on on the mountain, but they... Shut up, Dan. Just let me me do this, okay? (laughs) Tactics really matter on the road. On the road, you can absolutely beat someone stronger than you if you have good tactics because it's just because of aerodynamics, right? When you're moving that much faster, if there's some really strong idiot and he's willing to tow you all day long, you know, you know, you he can have his FTP can be twice as high as yours, but if he tows you for six hours, you're going to beat him at the end, right? That doesn't come into play so much in cross country racing. No. Tactics still exist. They but it's exist, not like, but it's not. It's not anything like it is with road cycle racing. Yes, with road cycle racing, <laughs> it's all the rage with the youngsters these days <laughs> on their penny farthing bicycles. It's a great way to distract you from the Great Depression, huh, Dan? Yes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I might cut that. If you're listening to this, just know that my, my uh, better nature didn't win. <laughs> okay. Because really with, with mountain bike racing, um, Alex Grant compared it to a technical tri- time trial. Um, I've heard Joe call it like a dirty crit. Yeah. Nike, um, Nike is kind of a dirt crit, a which, dirt, is, which doesn't but, help this metaphor because crits are actually very tactical. But like really Nike races are kind of time trials. You know, like well, you're... And cross country racing in general is more because because really it ultimately comes down to who gets the fastest time on the course that day or whose overall speed is the fastest. You know who who basically gets to the finish line first. I mean it's mm-hmm. um, you know I've, I've heard people say it's whoever has the fastest average speed for the day is going to win every time. 
Um, so well, really, that, that is true, like mathematically true. Yeah, but you know, yeah. sorry, carry on. Yeah. So, I I just gave you guys a brilliant tip of going faster. Yeah, but again, if you're the Gibbons twins, or if if you're in a race and there's some moron who's going to pull you around all day, let them. You know, yeah. if they're going way slower than you can, you should probably, you know, then you, you're taking the risk of, oh, other people are going to catch us. I should just go. You know, like that's another bit of calculus. But like if someone's going to give you a pull, let them until it's not useful anymore, you know. And and like also, I think I think do your part. You know, like if you're in a if you're in a group of three guys and you're trying to catch the leader and, and you don't want the next group of guys to catch you, take some turns on the front. You know, being in a group might benefit you. Right. Yeah. So, you so, know, use use common sense, I guess, is the, is the essence of it. So I've got. So after just establishing that, you know, tactics are kind of important for mountain bike racing, I've got 10 that I want to go. I don't want to go over these in kind of rapid fire form. Um, we've kind of we've kind of already touched on some of them a little bit, but here's my here's my list for today. Um, the first tactic, I think, is probably the most important one, and that is don't blow up. I want to make fun of you for this because it sounds obvious, but like that has been my bane. That's been the bane of my cycling career has just been going too hard and blowing up. Yeah. You want to figure out how hard you can go without actually blowing up and blowing up is where you just basically ex- exceed what you're capable of. Your, your body stops you essentially. You basically where, just get to a point where you have to shut down. Yeah. None of us are, none of us are supermen. There is a point where you will hurt so bad where your body is trying to get you to stop so much that you will. So go as hard as you can. But don't go, don't push to a point that you're just going to shut down and blow up and and blowing up just kind of ruins the rest of your race. So um, so that's the first one. The second one is really important in is positioning. Um, you know, the 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 saying is you want to start a cross country race where you want to finish it. If you want to be on the podium, you've got to start in the up towards the front, you know, within like the first or second row. Yeah, it's going to have a really hard time y- getting on the podium from a 40th row start. Yeah. Even if you're strong enough to. And you really want to enter the single track as close to the front as you can. Um, y- you know, a lot of times I wouldn't say it's, it's usually not a great idea unless you're way stronger than the rest of the field to be the first one, but you should be like the first, second, third or fourth to the single track. You know, um, every once in a while you see a kid, that just we we call it Polonino where you just they just go off on the front they just go hard they try to stay ahead and win the whole race that usually doesn't go very well like if if you are capable of doing that you don't need to ask us about tactics like that that's that's generally associated with a rider who is so much better than everyone else in their field right who frankly is probably sandbagged you know like I whenever I see a kid do that in sophomore I'm like dude come on you know like bump up or even JV I'm like dude it, it works sometimes and I've seen it work really well sometimes, but usually it doesn't. So if, if you're a junior Devo and Nike is not letting you do the real race yet, go off and do it. But like this doesn't apply to most people. Generally, that's a bad idea. Don't try and pull a Nino. Okay. So the third one is, is if you catch someone, you should pass them. Now there's, um, you know, drafting and aerodynamics is important in mountain biking not quite as important as it is in, in, in road cycling. Typically you're not going fast enough that drafting is a huge advantage. So I I know a lot of people that will catch someone and try to draft off them for a little while. And while that might be a good chance to, to rest up a little bit, it's really not going to make you faster. 
if you catch someone that meant you're going faster than them, you should get around them and keep going. This, the only time I would really say, and, and that's kind of, um, kind of moving us into the next one about drafting. I would really only try to draft off someone that's pulling you along and making you go faster than you would if that person wasn't there. If it's someone that's, that's pushing the pace for you a little bit beyond what you would normally do if you were riding alone, then I think it would make sense to draft off of them. Um, otherwise, otherwise, you generally should Probably pass don't them. Bother. And, and like for what it's worth, if it's a bigger rider too, you know, like if somebody's five foot two, you're not going to get much of a draft off of them. Like I'm, I'm thinking of like the big road in the St. George course, right? In the Green Valley course, you're, you're kind of on the road. You're going pretty fast for a while. Like I remember being in a Nike race, catching somebody there who was like six foot two. Like, yeah, heck yeah, yeah, yeah. Ride in his draft for 30 seconds, you know, let that speed you up to the speed you'd be going at if you weren't resting while well, you do rest up and then, you know, hit it on the climb again. Do not draft behind someone all race long unless they're in first and you're in second. And like what the Gibbons did was fine. That was and and frankly, if the kid who's doing that is listening, what he should have done and what he will do when he gets older and more mature is is he will stop. He will pull off to the side and say, okay, now your turn to pull. You know, in road races, you'll see it all the time that when somebody's sick of pulling, they will stop pulling, and somebody else is kind of forced to go to the front and go hard. So, um, if you're in second and there's a guy in first that's towing you and it's fast enough to drop everybody else, great, but like you probably aren't going to do a lot of races where you have the benefit of just sitting in someone's draft the whole time. Okay. So, I'm going to, there's actually a couple I'm going to skip, just kind of an interest of time. Um, but this next one I'm going to do is super important and really easy to remember. It is whenever, always try to lead on a descent. So like say you're climbing a hill and you know a descent is coming, this would be a good time to put in some extra effort to get ahead of your group and to lead on that descent because if the people behind you then are faster, you've got them stuck behind you and you're controlling the pace. If they're slower, you can get away from them. There's really not a good reason not to get ahead of somebody right before a descent. Now, this is not to say that you should block people on descents. If somebody is significantly faster than you and they really want to get around, say, and they were like, hey, let me pass it. Sure, but let them do the work, you know? And, and like, there are going to be riders who are way better than you, but again, uh, like on, on a descent, let them do the work. You know, get out of the way, be safe. Um, don't be a douchebag, but like, you know, well, don't. But tech, I mean, technically, if they're in your division, you own the trail and you're the one that has to let them by. Um, if if someone from another division wants to pass, always, always, always yeah, that's let right. them if, by. If the varsity leader catches you, get off of your bike. Um, if, the, if, the ra if the leader of any race that is not yours catches you, get off your bike. Don't get off to the side. No, you don't have to get don't off slow the down. Bike. I would say not you just off have your to bike. Get out of the way. Get out, maybe come to a full stop is what I'm trying to say. Not yeah. get off your bike, but like let them by. I've seen this so many times where like, you know, the rhythm of a race is totally destroyed and somebody loses a lot of work because someone at the back of another division did not get out of the way. Please get out of the way if that's you. So yeah. So it always makes sense to get ahead of people before the descent because either you're controlling the pace or you're getting away from them. But there's there's always a good reason to, to yeah. get ahead. There's always worth an, a little extra effort. There's no downside to, to starting starting the single. To leading, leading yeah. on the descent. Um, so, got a few more. I'm kind of skipping through these pretty quick. Um, 
So here's one that's not really a tactic, but more just like some advice. Uh, you know, whenever you race, there's always going to be dark moments. There's always going to be times where you're going to feel terrible, but then there's also times when you feel pretty good. Just know that if you're in a moment during a race where you feel terrible, you're going to feel good again soon. I've had races where I thought I was going to have to quit. I, I felt like I, I thought I was bonked, but I got some nutrition, started feeling better and ended up being fine and being strong. So the dark moments don't last forever. You're going to have light moments soon. You're going to feel, you're going to feel terrible and you're going to feel great in the same race. So just be mentally strong when you're going through the dark moments because it will get better. I'd, I'd throw out another thing, finish the race. Like if, and there were totally moments for me, like I don't, I don't know that I've ever DNF'd before, like just because I was too tired or I wasn't, I wasn't feeling good. But um, if you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm gonna be a disappointment, I thought I would be better and this is the first race and I'm in 30th and I thought I could be in the top 10, don't pull out. If you're just, I have so much more respect for someone who finishes the race. And on top of that, like if you have a bad race, don't come up with a crappy excuse. You know, just be like, oh, it wasn't my day. I have so much respect for the guy who goes out and has a, has a rough day and is, is not doing as well as they think. And they finish the race and they're just like, yeah, it was, it was a bad day. I'll do better next time. You know, don't be like, oh, you know, my whatever hurt. And then I, you know, like, I don't, I've, and I've done that before. I've come up with crappy excuses for why I didn't do as well as other people thought I would. But finish the race, yeah. I guess. Everyone's going to have bad races. Everyone's going to have disappointing races. And you should never judge yourself on one race. You should never judge anyone on race. You should on never judge on a good either. race too. Like just because you have a good race, that doesn't mean everything. If you have a bad race, that doesn't mean everything. One race means nothing. Yeah. You know, you, the, 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 I, you know, I said, I, I've said it before. I care more about the overall, you know, I have so much respect for that rider who finishes third every time and wins the overall because they're consistent. You know, I, I think that's, that's a virtue in and of itself. So, and the last one I'm going to mention, and I, I skipped a few, um, the last one again, you, you kind of brushed on a little bit and that was just don't ever give up. So much can happen in racing and, and it's such a crazy sport. And, you know, say you've got a guy or a gal ahead of you that you think's impossible to catch. So you start giving up, you know, that person could run out of gas. That person could mechanical crash, whatever. Don't ever give up. Like you never know what's going to happen. People blow up towards the end of races all the time. Um, just, just keep pushing. Yeah. yeah. You're not the only one hurting. Everyone's hurting. Every, everybody's hurting really, really bad. You know, when you're hurting so bad and you're like, why am I doing, it? I can't believe I paid to do this. And I drove out to the middle of nowhere to do this. And this sucks. Like everyone else feels that way too. You're like, I've, I, there were positions I've been in in races before where like the kid in front of me was like, Oh, that's such and such. They're better than me. I won't even try to pass them because they're better. You know, get, try it. If you feel good, don't blow up. But like, don't, well, don't, don't psych yourself out. You're like, oh, Dave's always better than me. And I'm, I'm catching him, but that can't be right. You know, like, don't, don't do stupid. I've played so many stupid mind games with myself. Like, that's such like a kitschy, stupid, like, you're your own worst enemy, but it's really true. You know, like, like there is, the, your, your, your brain will try to shut you down in so many stupid ways. Just don't let it. So that makes, I might go back to one I skipped because that kind of leads into it a little bit is, is winners kind of take chances. You know, you can't be overly cautious and careful and win a race. You really do have to push your limits. You really do have to, I mean, 
number one rule is don't blow up, but number two might be get as close as you can to blowing up without actually blowing up. Take I mean, gutsy risks. In, in cycling, we call it panache in cycling. Just people who are like attacking all the time. And those are the riders, even if they don't win, people love watching. You know, attack, you know, give give it a shot. If you, As long as you're not going to blow up, don't be like, eh, why, why bother? I or crash. We don't want or crash. Either. Yeah, those, you know. That doesn't help you win. But yeah, like, you know, I, I'd say take risks. You know, nobody, Nino, Nino just won his 10th world title today. Um, he didn't do that by being, you know, super conservative about the way he races. You know, like he, he'll he'll ride away if he can. He'll he'll attack if he can't. You know, um, don't give up. Take risks. Um, you know, and then going back to that first one, just don't blow up because we're talking to Nike racers here, and they're the king. You know, they're the kings of blowing up. Once you realize that you can race without blowing up, totally opens up your world. Once you realize that that's not like a critical part of the race experience, you know, that took me so long to realize. Um, but yeah, and as always, like if there's any particular facet of like tactics that you struggle with or a situation you keep finding yourself in and you're not sure how to how to handle it, like ask us, you know, we ask but, us on the pod, you know, ask people around you. Like there there is something it's worth thinking about this. Like this, don't just go out and race without thinking. You know, like, tactics well, do matter. Uh, and in closing, you know, kind of the last thing I want to say really is, yeah, tactics are important, but this is not a sport that you should overthink. And in fact, I think the best races you're ever going to have are races when you get into a flow state. I mean, all of you guys have raced so many times. You've done a lot of races. You guys all have a lot of experience. You've done a lot of group rides. You guys know how to ride your bikes and you know how to ride them fast. If you can get to a point where you're more in a flow state and a lot of these awesome tactical things you're doing just out of instinct, it's going to be so much more fun. It's going to go better and it's going to be faster. I always like to tell people to just use the force. You know, you kind of turn off your algebra brain and you turn on your, as, as Lee McCormick says, your lizard brain. And you just kind of let all that practice and experience that you've had just kind of go to work for you. And a lot of these things should come naturally and really don't have to be forced. You know, you'll just, if you just kind of go, you know, get into a flow state and do these things. You're going to, you're going to make awesome race moves just kind of naturally. Do we end on that? Was that good enough to end on? I mean, we're grading on a curve. Yeah. Like grading on your curve, hundred percent good enough to end on. All right. Let's just end there. If it was on mine, I'd keep talking until I came up with something better, but that's kind of my motto anyway. Um, Have fun. Bikes are awesome. It's just, I just love seeing so many happy kids out there this weekend. Oh yeah. Bravo. Keep that up. So fun. Rest of the season, man. Let's, let's see more of that. I'm, I I think I'm going to come out to some of these races. I I need to see it. It was, yeah, it was just an awesome day for me. Bravo. Well done, everybody. This is the exciting time of year where we cash the checks we've been working for, you know, um, like I, you've, you've been working all year. Um, make it count right now. Have a good time. Enjoy it. You've all, You've all earned the, the right to feel pretty good about yourselves right now. I think especially considering the performances we saw yesterday. Um, yeah, bravo, everybody. As always, if you have any questions, you know where to send them. And uh, yeah, turn on that lizard brain. <laughs>